Welcome to the Looper Podcast, the show where we make the rounds with interesting golf personalities. Here's your host, Eric Payton. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. I'm really excited to get started with today's interview. It's with PGA Tour caddy, Paul Tesori. He's currently with Webb Simpson um, and has a lot of really cool stories. He's also a phenomenal guy. I really enjoyed talking to him. Uh, So here is the episode and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Paul Tesori, caddy for Webb Simpson, been a caddy on the PGA Tour for 20 years now. Sounds good. Awesome. Well, so how'd you get started playing golf? So I grew up in uh, St. Augustine, Florida. My grandfather and dad uh, both uh, played golf. Grandfather was a starter up at Ponte Vedra Club for about 35 years, and my dad uh, was a really good player as well, um, very good at a young age. Um, he had to he had to go to work, make money, so the golf career kind of ended. But um, they got me onto the golf course, and I very quickly uh, loved to follow them around and uh, fell in love with it at the early age of five. Yeah, okay. And so what was your kind of pre-college uh, golf career like? Were you um, At what point did you realize you could start playing college golf? Yeah. Um, I was a, I was a really good high school player, um, as far as, you know, the state of Florida goes, but we didn't come from a lot of money, so we couldn't afford to go to a lot of the national tournaments. So there wasn't a whole lot of recognition. Um, but I, uh, you know, my skill level was still pretty high at that age. I had played baseball as well. And I still remember after my sophomore year that my dad said, you know, son, you're going to have to make a choice here soon. Uh, you got a great chance to get a a full ride someplace and you just need to choose which sport you want to go with. And it's, it's okay. Either one. And I remember praying about it. The next day I got hit in the head with a fastball. And so I went home that night. It's like, dad, I got it. Golf. I'm not going to get hit. I'm not going to get hit going that way. So um, my junior year of high school was the first year I knew, okay, this is what I'm going to do at least going into college. And, you know, hopefully there was going to be something out of that. And, um, you know, just to kind of, for me, I didn't really have any scholarship offers. So I ended up going a junior college route. I uh, went to a junior college up in central Alabama. We were able to win a national championship up there and and uh, had a good run. And then when I left there after my sophomore year, I kind of had – I was fortunate enough to have a little bit of the pick of the litter of where I wanted to go. And um, the University of Florida was probably about last on that list because I grew up a, a huge Seminole fan. Um, my dad graduated from there. Uncles graduated from there. Cousin, everybody graduated from Florida State. And remember hiding behind couches during some of those miss or wide rights and all that against Miami. And, um, but when I went to Florida, the, um, Oh, what, what am I trying to say? The, the aura around the program was much different. They were a top three program. Then the players were better. Um, there was a hunger there and a drive there. And so, uh, middle of nowhere, I ended up going to Florida and it took me about a year to become a Gator. But after about a year, I was, I was a full-time Gator rooting for him everywhere, but we were able to win a national championship there as well in 1993. And just a, just a huge part of my life that I'll always look back on with a lot of fondness. Um, I grew up a lot during, learned a lot about the game. My coach buddy, Alexander taught me a lot and, um, it was where a lot of growing up, uh, especially as far as the, the game of golf goes. Yeah. Yeah. So are there any guys that are on that that were on that team that then made the jump to pro as well? 
Yes, yeah. So um, Chris Couch and Brian Gay are two guys that both uh, both won on the PGA Tour. Brian's still out there competing. He's won several times. And then at one point we had seven guys that played either the Web.com or PGA Tour um, at at least one, one stint. So, yeah, just a lot of, a lot of really good players. I remember qualifying rounds felt like tournaments. You know, you were out grinding with everything you had to beat your teammates just to have an opportunity to go play. And I think that's one reason why uh, we were so good at the time. And, uh, you know, one reason why when I look back, it was all of those days that probably prepared me more for anything else than even the tournament days that we would go play. It's those grinds during the uh, qualifier just to have the opportunity to go play in the tournament. Yeah. Okay. So then in college, right, you uh, you competed in the USAM in, in 94. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, okay. That's, which, that's correct. Which would have been both at a course uh, that became even more special, I'm sure, later on. Uh, we'll get to that later. But that was also the the uh, tournament where Tiger Woods kind of broke out. Um, do you remember much about that tournament and and how you competed and what you were um, what your game was like at the time? I I do for sure. Yeah. Um, obviously, it was a big deal for me to qualify for the players. I, I was the third person on the signage sheet. Uh, they still have it up at the clubhouse and to show up because I lived here. So I was obviously anxious and excited to go. Um, I qualified for match play. I, I lost in the second round to. Uh, Eric Frechette, uh, who played for Kent State. Eric that year had won five times at Kent State, and uh, I was two matches away from playing against Tiger. Eric eventually got beat by Tiger in the quarterfinals, um, and uh, you know there would there would have been a chance for that uh, for that. And also, my head coach at the time, Buddy Alexander, had Tiger um, four down with six to play in that same week. The it had been match after mine, two match, yeah, the match after mine. Um, I was going to have to play my coach, and I didn't end up having to play the coach. Um, ended up, uh, you know, uh, getting beat, but um, he ended up losing the Tiger. And so there's just a lot of stuff there, you like locally, you know, that you remember. And then, you know, for us, we obviously already knew how good he was. He had won three um, U.S. juniors in a row, which nobody had ever won more than one in a row. And then here he is at 18 years old, and he just kept coming back from these massive deficits. And um, you know, to now remember that the U.S. Amateur made it the match play was uh, his biggest victory to that date. Obviously, still one of his what best 18 victories, uh, 15 as a pro and three as uh, amateur majors is, is going to be something I'll always think of in a, in a favorable way. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, so then, was that the uh, last U.S. Amateur that you played in? It is. Yep, that's the last okay. one I played in. Okay, and then so after college, when you're making the jump to the pro game, um, what what was that what was that process like, and um, what was surprising about the switch from college to college to pro? Yeah, well, um, so at first when uh, college was done, I stayed another year to graduate, and so I left college in '95 uh, with my degree and. I actually didn't think I was good enough to play uh, on the PGA Tour. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to get in the program, um, which I know you know what that means. But for those of you that don't, you know, I was going to become an assistant golf professional, eventually a head golf professional and get in what we call the um, PGM program. And I, that was the route I was going to go. Well, after four months of working about 60 to 70 hours a week and making about $30,000 doing that, I was like, well, this is not fun at all. Um, so I'm going to start practicing. And sure enough, that year I went to Q school and got my tour card. So, uh, you know, my goal at first was not to do it, but I ended up turning pro that summer. I had a good summer of mini tour golf, uh, went straight through Q school, got through all three stages and, 
I remember going to Q school. My goal was not to get my tour card because I knew I wasn't ready yet. You know, I hadn't really been competing again that long. I'd never traveled by myself in college. Everything's taken care of it for you. And I just felt like I needed a year back then. I think it was Nike tour back then. Um, and I knew I needed a year there to learn. And it's just one of those things. I got my card and I got kind of thrust into the, into the big leagues, played pretty good my first couple of tournaments and didn't make the cut. And I just, I didn't have a teacher. I didn't have somebody I could probably rely on. I had my best friend caddying for me and, you know, I just started trying things. Um, and before I knew it, I had ripped up my rotator cuff. Um, I had lost my game, got off the tour, got my shoulder fixed, came back. And unfortunately, my head never came back. Um, really, really struggled, developed the golf yips or the swing yips. Um, there's there's no other way to look at them but that. And for me, I, I had lost a game that I had fallen in love with at that time and, and didn't really know what the next chapter was going to be. I started teaching full time, which I love. And, uh, and then one day I got a phone call and that kind of changed, uh, changed my life going forward. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So if we, if we kind of hang back here on the, uh, on the Q school stuff, tell me about that grind and was, was that, um, a shocking experience to you or did it just kind of come naturally and come easy? Yeah. Well, it was funny cause that was my first year playing professionally. And I remember on the mini tours, I was told by a couple of the older guys that this is your best chance to ever get through Q school. I didn't understand what they meant. Um, and his comment was, he's like, you don't really understand what it means. I was like, yes, I do. He goes, you think you do, but you don't. Um, and at first it didn't really register to me. I wasn't really sure what that meant, but I did like, once I looked back on it for me, it was just another tournament. It truly was. I was finishing top five in every mini tour event I was in. All I had to do was finish in the top 30 each week to advance on each stage. And so to me, I go into it like, well, this is easy. That was my mind state. It really was. Um, and even going in the last stage, um, you know, I didn't play that good. I didn't feel like, uh, again, my expectations were low because I didn't really want my tour card. I was probably the only guy there that didn't want the tour card. I really knew I wasn't ready. Um, and maybe that's one of the reasons why I got it. I was in next to last place after 21 holes and came all the way back and played beautiful the rest of the week to get my card. And, and so for me, I think it was a little bit of not knowing, uh, I guess, the depth of how important it was. Um, and a little bit, I was, I was a little more fearless than golf had never failed me at that time. And so I think that leads to a little bit of fearlessness, uh, when something has never failed you. Um, it ended up being not a very good idol because when it did fail, it, when it did fail me or I failed at it, uh, you know, it obviously led to some dark times, some depressing times and some soul searching at the same time. Thank goodness it ended up leading me to my faith. But, um, you know, it, it was kind of, uh, it was a grind, but for me, it was a joy. Like it was fun. I, I never remember it being overly, it was a little nerve wracking in second stage because I was in third place going to the last day and the expectations rose a little bit, but uh, the rest of the time it felt pretty natural. Okay. Wow. Okay. Um, and so then, then as you go through your career, is there, um, is there some point on the tour that was kind of a highlight? Yeah. I, unfortunately there weren't many highlights. Um, I would say definitely my first one was my first tournament. Um, it would actually been, I guess, second tournament, uh, would have been at Pebble beach. Um, it was uh, a teed off at, at Pebble shot, even par. Um, it was, it was some really tough conditions. It was rainy, a little cool and windy and, and played really well. And, and we weren't allowed to walk the golf courses that week. They were, they were so wet that they didn't want anybody even out on the courses. So we had to play uh, a PlayStation game. I don't even think it was PlayStation back then, maybe Sega, whatever it was, uh, on uh, the PGA Tour golf game to try to find lines. And we took notes 
going off the lines on where to go, um, believe it or not. And so that was the way we had to see the golf course for the first time. So uh, to go out and shoot even par and to kind of pull that off, we ended up missing the cut by two, but actually played pretty nice all week. I shot 72, 72, 73. Uh, I think cut was one under for this cut by two, but um, had played pretty well. And some of those memories were good as the weeks kind of progressed. My shoulder got worse and those are kind of where my fond memories uh, stop, to be honest with you. The rest of it was was a grind. The rest of it was hard. The rest of it was, I'm going to use the word embarrassing. Um, kind of really, uh, it, it was it was gut-wrenching to me. A uh, game that I loved so much, um, I had completely lost my ability to play it. And on the grandest stage, uh, which made it even harder. Uh, but, but again, I look back on it now and it, it, it was a blessing, but very hard to go through at the time. Right. Okay. So then your, your career ends and you said you receive a phone call. What was that? I did. So, um, I obviously when I was on tour, I played in practice here in Ponte Vedra out at TPC Sawgrass. And, um, I got to know quite a few of the guys out there, Jim Furyk, David Duvall, VJ Singh, uh, Jim Hallett, quite a few of the other guys that were out there. And I used to play and practice with them. I love to kind of, you know, gamble and short game and putting and everybody else liked to do it too. It's just a good way to get better. And, um, so I had been out of the game for a year. I decided I wasn't going to play anymore and I was teaching full time and I got a phone call from, uh, BJ and I always re- remember this because, uh, me and my wife, we had prayed about, you know, if, if, uh, the Lord really wanted us to continue to teach me, continue to teach. I'm in, um, there wasn't a whole lot of money in it. I was happy, but if he wanted more, more out of us, let us know. And the next morning I get this phone call. And I remember it says, Hey, Paul, it's VJ, VJ Singh here. And I'm like, yeah, VJ, there's only one. Yeah. VJ Singh here. He's like, give me a call. Give me a call. And this was uh, towards the end of the summer. Um, so I called him and he wanted to know if I wanted to come out and caddy for a week that, um, he re- wasn't really looking to make a change or anything. He just, he, he had lost some consistency in his game. And so I went out and we finished 11th that first week and I changed something in his golf swing. And he asked me to come the next week as his teacher. So the next week, which was the PGA Championship, it was Jack's last PGA, uh, where he lipped out the wedge shot on the last hole of a hollow to miss the cut by one. Yep. And it was Tiger, it was Jack, and VJ. The most people I've ever seen on a golf course follow one group in my life. And so, um, you know, for me, it was eye-opening, but VJ missed the cut, and he asked me to come work for him uh, at the end of that. Uh, and full-time. So I went from making about $18,000 a year to making about eighteen a week, uh, the way VJ was playing at the time. And um, I worked for Veach for the next three years, and then when we split up, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know if I wanted to continue to caddy, so I had started. I had sent out some resumes. I'd been interviewed for a job at a bank and also at a golf course to maybe get back into the program, and uh, Jerry Kelly called, and that was 2003, and um, from that point forward, that's what I did for a living. Me and Jerry had a ton of success, President's Cup team together, and I knew, okay, hey, I'm actually good at this, and I make good money at this. This is probably going to be my career. Um, and that was 2003, and here we are in 2019. So been adding 20 seasons now, and uh, it's been a ride. Worked for four guys full time, being uh, Veej, Jerry, Sean O'Hare, and Webb now for the last nine seasons. So it's yeah, time goes by fast. So you would have worked for VJ from around like 99 to 03? I started in 2000. I started 2000. Late in 2000. Okay. Yeah, worked for him to 03, and then we had another stint um, in. Oh five, oh six. Okay, and um, so we had a couple stunts there. And so he would have been the number one player in the world around that time, right? Yes. Yeah, he overtook number one in the world there in two thousand three. 
Um, and, uh, at the end, yep. At the end of 2003 and was able to hold him off for quite a while. Yeah. Well, no, I'm sorry. Overtook number one in the world, 2004, um, when he won nine times on tour. Yep. And then held him off all the way through the first, uh, half of 2005. And then, uh, Tiger got on a run. VJ was still playing great, but, uh, Tiger was able to wrestle it back away from us. But yeah, there were, there were some great fun battles during, during that time. So can you tell me about the Tiger who? <laughs> yes. So I get asked this question a lot. Um, I was even asked it by Jim Furyk this past year at the Ryder Cup, who was our Ryder Cup captain. He had never heard the real story. And Tiger loves the real story because it paints this beautiful picture of Tiger um, and the way he likes it to be painted. So it was 2000. President's Cup, my third week working. I'm obviously on the international team working for VJ and Tiger's on the American team. Uh, we got paired against Tiger the first four matches. And Tiger was playing terrible. His partner was Noda Begay. A lot of people don't remember that Noda had won four times in 16 months, <coughs> was a stud, and was carrying Tiger. And the U.S. only needed two points to win on Sunday. And, of course, they pair Tiger with VJ again. So for the fifth straight day. So we show up. <coughs> and the ball boys have had 12 hats made up that say Tiger who beautifully embroidered embroidered we asked them why they just said out oh, Tiger hadn't signed their flag yet and so they just thought it'd be fun blah 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 blah. so I go to VJ show him the hat he laughs he goes yeah that's hilarious fun so I wear the hat so nothing big's going on we're one up through three VJ and I are one up over Tiger and uh, we get to number four par three Tiger's got about 15 feet for bogey and VJ just tells him to pick it up. It's 15 feet. VJ's only got 10 feet for birdie. So he figures Tigers will say, yeah, VJ, that's good. Tiger doesn't say a word. So VJ puts it down to literally uh, an eighth of an inch. It's, it's hanging over the edge. And I didn't hear anything. He says, did he say anything? I said, no. And we look over there, and he's got his arms crossed, his legs spread apart, and he's got a scowl on his face. So Tiger, VJ says, I think he saw your hat and doesn't like it. I laugh. He laughed, man. I'll never forget the swing on the next tee. Tiger turned about another 15 degrees. He had about a 300-yard, one-yard draw and played the next 13 holes, seven under to beat us two and one. And, uh, it, you know, I didn't think it was a big deal. Again, it's my third tournament caddying. I'm from, you know, St. Augustine, Florida. Probably things over I, – I probably overlook certain things. I get done. I am just mobbed by USA Today, by the New York Times, by like every newspaper you can see. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what has happened here? So um, Tiger loves tell, loves me telling that part of the story. And the next part of the story he likes me telling is, so I never really talked. I had apologized to Tiger in person when I saw him and he was really nice. I was like, buddy, I didn't mean it disrespectfully. I thought it was funny, blah, blah, blah. And he was nice about it, but we didn't talk about it again for 11 years. So 2012, um, me and Weber are, I think we're in Doral. Uh, I might have the place mixed up, but Tiger's walking on the putting green. And he likes to play this game called Call of Duty. And I said, hey, buddy, your handle needs to be um, Tiger Who. I had told him that before. So he walks by. And I go, what's up, Tiger Who? He goes, what's up, two and one? <laughs> he had, he did not wait a millisecond in between when I said, what's up, Tiger Who? He said, what's up, two and one? 
He he had that on the tip of his tongue, which you think about, like most of us, it would take probably a couple seconds to think about what to come back with, and he came back with it right away. Um, and so Tiger loves the story being told now. Um, I love the Tiger Woods that we get to see now. Um, he was not that same man back in those days, but I think kids have a lot to do with that. I also think some humility going through some hard times. Um, help in that area as well, but he is a different human being on that golf course now, and it's been really fun uh, for everybody to get to see a lighter, gentler version um, of Tiger. Okay, so then you're you're moving on from VJ onto Jerry Kelly, and you said uh, Sean O'Hare, right? Yep, yep. Um, what, what do you remember from those uh, two bags? Yeah, so I think my first thing with Jerry was it was nice. I finally. Like it was the first time I knew, okay, hey, I'm actually good at this. Um, it was my first week working for Jerry, and we were out at Cog Hill in Chicago, um, where we ended up we ended up winning. But like, there was this eighth hole, and he was gonna have to pitch out, and there was like a willow tree. And I said, hey, Jerry, you notice every time the wind blows, these limbs go up and down. We could wait for a gust and just hit it, go right on the green. He's like, what? I was like, yeah. And we waited, and about every 15 to 30 seconds, a little gust would come through, and there would be a window there. So he said, I said, I think you just stand over the ball, be ready to go. And as soon as it comes, I'll say something, you go. And we did it. He hit on the green, made birdie. Um, And he ended up winning that week. He got on the President's Cup team um, and over in South Africa where they had the tie. And I think that was right there. I was like, man. And, you know, he was blown away, obviously. And I started to figure out, okay, I know certain things and I can feel certain things because of the level I'd play the game at that other people can't. And. I worked for Jerry. We had a lot of success. And then I went to go work for O'Hare, and we had quite a bit of success, too. Did the President's Cup team out in San Francisco in 2009. Uh, won a few times. And so for me, it was just kind of that, okay, it's telling me, okay, you do have a talent here. And I, I loved it, to be honest with you. I always tell everybody I slept great every night. I had to worry about all those short putts the next day. So, you know, there, there's the blessing inside of that for sure. And so I, I think that was – the biggest things I remember about those two guys, just that it gave me the conviction that hey, I'm good at this and this is something I want to do. Um, and then, uh, you know, here here comes Webb. Um, I've only been fired once in my life, and that was by O'Hare, late in 10, and me and O'Hare were friends. Um, it came as a shock to me. I had become a, I had become a believer, become a Christian. I was baptized in the summer of 2010, and by the time the winter of 2010 had happened, I had lost my job. The real estate crash had, had occurred. I'd lost a relationship with the girl I thought I was going to marry. And so I remember sitting there in December, and I'm like, wait, what's going on right now? I thought I thought everything was supposed to go the other way, but later on, did I, it wasn't very hard to learn that prosperity gospel is not the way Jesus taught. And what Jesus was doing was stripping away all my love of the world, and uh, he had Webb Simpson waiting for me. And I accepted a job with Webb. He was 213th in the world, had just kept his card. And uh, he is the greatest man I've ever met in my life, and um, you know, I was able to teach him a lot about golf, but he taught me a lot, a lot about life and a lot about faith. And, uh, so I still think he wins out in that category that he taught me about the good stuff, uh, besides just the game. So had you heard about Webb Simpson before he contacted you? Not really. Um, I, I knew who he was. I, I'm, I'm a golf geek, so I know everybody that's on tour, but I knew that he had struggled. I knew he was a believer, been paired with him one time and just loved his attitude and his demeanor. But I obviously didn't think he was, you know, good enough to be a world-class player. I didn't. Um, when I went to go work for him, I did it. I was just trying to be, in my own way, obedient. Um, to, uh, to, to, to be honest with you, for me, to the way I wanted to live my life. And I wanted to be around a man that I knew did it the way I wanted to do it. Um, and at the end of that year, he was 10th in the world. Um, had won a couple times, almost one player of the year. 
And it was just a huge reminder to me that like, I, I keep putting these limitations on things and I shouldn't, I just need to rely on my faith, rely on my knowledge and, and see where that'll bring and what platform that'll bring with it. And it was one of the biggest lessons I had ever learned because at the end of the year, he made what 9.3 million that year. And, um, I had goals written down, which was $2 million, um, you know, like seven top tens and he made 9.3 million and had 14 top tens for the year. And just, again, just a reminder not to put caps on things. So one of the things I love about Webb Simpson and how he goes about things, he, he doesn't necessarily, um, I don't think he gets the, um, recognition that he probably deserves. I mean, he, he is a major champion plus a player's champion, you know, and, uh, and yet, no one talks about him and how he goes about his business and how how you go about your business with him. Um, I love watching that and I, I respect you guys so much. Um, and so thank you. It's it's really cool to see that sort of influence out on tour. Well, I, I still appreciate it, but it's it's interesting. It's kind of our society nowadays. You know, when you're clean cut, you don't get in trouble. Great husband, great dad, great friend, great boss. There's nothing to be covered if that makes sense. And, you know, John Daly is still one of the biggest draws every time he comes out. And you look at, he's probably the opposite of the life that Webb has lived. Um, I like John. Um, but like you would think that Weber would be the one getting the accolades and the attention and that kind of stuff, but it's just not the way, uh, societal, you know, ways work a lot of times. Um, and, uh, and, and I'm okay with that. Weber's okay with that. All we can do is what we have, you know, he's not, he's probably the shortest guy among the elite players in the world. Um, you know, he's not flashy. His golf swing isn't modern and pretty the way everybody else is, but he just gets the job done. And like I said, he's, he's a human being that I want to be the father. He is the dad. He is the friend. He is the boss. He is, uh, I obviously like to play golf like him too, but that's not going to happen. So, uh, yeah, but, uh, you know, I, I can't say enough about that man. Um, he's 33, I'm 47 yet. I look up to him. That'll tell you a lot about the way he lives his life. Yeah. I mean, is, is there part of you that wishes there was a little more, um, coverage of what he does and recognition of his skill? Yes. Well, definitely for me, definitely for his wife, definitely for his friends. I actually can honestly say, I don't think Webb cares. I honestly don't think he can. I care. I think he deserves and should get more. His wife, his family, friends, everybody else, we all believe that. Um, but and even his co, you know, his um, his his coworkers, his his peers believe that too. They all love him. And again, I just think the fact that he doesn't care about it leads to probably not getting as much of it as some of the other guys. He just he just wants to be his man um, and and do his work and you know, live his life, uh, loving other people as well as he does and, and go from there. Uh, and not really, not really seeking that other stuff. I, I do wish he, he got the attention he deserves. Your role with him. Can you kind of explain what is, and, and even your previous players, what is your role on the golf course and even preparation before a tournament? What do you, are you a teacher? Are you an encourager? Are you, um, trying to just keep your player calm? Like, how do you, what is, what is your role? Cause I know, I think, Caddy's kind of get overlooked as just the guy who carries the bag, but you do so much more than that. Yeah, for sure. My, my answer to your one question there was yes on all those. A um, little bit of a sports psychologist, a little bit of mom, a little bit of best friend, a little bit of warden at times um, to be to be mean to or maybe just to be brutally honest. Uh, those kind of things. Um, I have uh, I've been Webb's coach uh, for quite a while now, but he's had. Um, you know, there are other guys all on the team. His high school coach growing up uh, was Ted Kegel. 
Uh, we still, you know, lean things off him on occasion. Butch Harmon, who we go see once a year, we lean on him on occasion. So even though I'm his swing coach, we lean on other guys and their advice um, just because I'm with him all the time. That's the reason why uh, it makes so much sense because I see all the changes from day to day, week to week, month to month um, on the tour. And so we think it's beneficial. Um, I've done a little bit of that with all my players, uh, not been full-time swing coach, but a little bit of all of them. I do think it's a big thing, uh, to be able to do, maybe not coach, but be able to know the differences in their golf swings when they're on or when they're not. Um, obviously coursework you brought up. Usually that's my job the day before they get there. If he gets there on Tuesday, I'm there on a Monday. I'll spend between six and 10 hours on the golf course, depending on how well I know it, just kind of getting it dialed in. Um, you know, with technology now, it's so much easier and quicker to do golf courses. It used to take probably 20 hours of work where now that's down to, you can definitely get it done in eight hours. Um, if it's a brand new course or, you know, like one that we haven't seen yet, um, it'll take longer, but if it's one that we've seen before, uh, six hours is usually plenty. So I'll get my work done that day. And then, yeah, just a little bit, um, of the psychology part of it. Everybody's different. You know, I'm going to use different verbiage with Webb than I did with VJ. Um, just because, uh, you know, with Weber, I can talk about faith or I can talk about the NBA or I can talk about his family, or if I need to tell him something that is going to sting a little bit, you know, I know how to do it with him. Um, so, you know, we're a little bit of a chameleon, uh, depending on who we're working for. And that's our job, uh, is to kind of, you know, round ourselves into form to be the personality our player needs. It's, it's not their job to do it. It's our job. Um, I'm just fortunate right now. I work for somebody. I can just be me. Uh, so that makes it a lot easier. Um, I've got, I've been really good friends with all my bosses. They've all treated me, treated me well. Um, it's just, this is the first one that, Truly, we have uh, the same ideals, the same faith, and so that part makes it a little bit easier. But there is everything in it. Um, I remember Weber having the big lead at TPC, and you know I had a lot of I call it premeditated combos ready to go on Sunday because with a, that big of a lead, it was going to be a long day, and it was a long, hard, hard day that last day at the players. And I mean, you saw what Brooks Kepka just did. Uh, you know, he had a seven-shot lead, and um, it was down to one. Um, and you know, uh, Dustin flagged it on the 16th hole. Could have been a tied ball game. Almost lost that tournament. So no lead is safe for sure. And so you just have to have a lot of those things kind of set in stone. Uh, I know that if it's going to be a hard day, I'll have some things to talk about just to get the mind off um, as we're going around. See, that's that's got to be kind of unusual, I would think, for the caddy to be the swing coach too. Is that? It is. I think there's only two of us left now, um, and actually there might only be one now. I think one of the reasons why. Is, um, Colin Swafford did it for Jason Day um, for several years. I think they caddied and he was a swing coach for all, probably five years. But the problem is, is after a long day on the course, um, you don't mind hearing something from your swing coach. But when the swing coach is your caddy, and you've just spent all that time together, it just doesn't come off as well. And, you know, even Weber and I, as kind as, you know, we try to be and everything, our arguments usually are in that exact, so it just happened at Quail Hollow a couple of weeks ago. Um, he really struggled the second day. I had been wanting to talk to him about a mechanical issue. I thought we got done with the round, he's hitting balls, and I just, I just come out with it, Weber, we got to talk. And he did not want to hear it, did not want to hear it. Um, and we had 15 minutes of some frustration there. After the 15 minutes, cooler heads prevailed, and he understood, and, and we put it to work, and it's, it's worked already. He's played better since then, for sure. Um, but it's it's the fact that that same entity was the same swing coach was your caddy who you had spent all that time with. And so it's just harder to accept, and so it can put a strain on the relationship. And so I think that's why you don't see more of it. Okay. Your preparation between a regular tour event and a major or even the players, how are those two different? 
Um, I think it all depends on where that major is or like, you know, the player, the players I know more than any other golf course. So my own course preparation is very, very small, very minimal. Um, a major championship like at Shinnecock, it had been eight years since I had been there. Um, and so at Shinnecock, I probably spent 15 hours on the golf course just for me preparing. And then once Webb gets there, we've kind of figured out we only, we only do nine a day. We do the same thing at the Masters. Because you can get a lot more done in that nine holes. So we play what we call slow nine. So we'll play a three-hour nine. We'll let a couple groups through. We'll chip and putt a lot. We'll talk about missed spots. Um, we got to make sure that we're on the same page. So come tournament time, we're not in the tournament having an argument about what's the play here, what's the play downwind, what's the play into the wind. Okay, it depends on the front and it's downwind, it's short better, it's long better. We get all of that out of the way in the practice round. So by the time Thursday starts, we're on the same page. And we think that's vital, uh, not only to good play, but also to the longevity of the relationship between the player and the caddy. Yeah. So then we're going to move into uh, the 2012 U.S. Open, which was uh, Webb's major. Um, yes. What stands out to you about that that event? Because um, that's got to be, if not the highest, one of the highest uh, points of your career and his career as well. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, you know, I just remember... I had never been to the Olympic club before Weber had lost in the semifinals of the U S amateur there. And he just said, Paul, it's one of my favorite courses in the world. I love everything about it. I love the way it looks. I love the shot shapes. I love everything. I can't wait for you to see it. And that week on Monday, Webb had a really bad day on the golf course. His son had taken his first steps and Webb was on the road and Webb doesn't get depressed and down very often, but he was definitely in a bad place. And, Um, you know, he had his wife fly out and they had a great week together. And by the time, uh, it was all said and done, we were on the 71st hole and, um, we had a really, really difficult shot. We were in between clubs trying to figure out which club one club was safe, but wasn't going to probably get to the green. The other club was going to be on the green, but if he missed it right or left, it brought in some junk and he goes, Paul, you know what the good news is? And I was so excited to hear this comment. I was like, yeah, yeah, what is it? But what do you got for me? And he's like, if we win 15 of these, it's not really going to matter because it's all going to go to waste one day. And I just remember that, man, look where his mind is right now on the 71st hole. That's where his mind was. In the beginning of the week, his mind was in a dark place. And he just for him, he turned to scripture, he turned to his faith, he turned to prayer, and then, you know, had his wife come out. And they had like a little little mini honeymoon out there. Um, and, uh, and at the end of the week, he was left holding the trophy, which is obviously an extremely special um special uh, memory special experience something uh obviously that i'll never forget for me it's my second greatest accomplishment winning the players uh is gonna overtake it uh i would think weber probably you know still has maybe has the 12 us open but um for everything that webb went through with the putting yips with the putting ban with everything else to come on top to go win against the strongest field in golf. I think for him and I, that one's always going to, um, TPC might always hold a little bit more merit, not only because of the golf course, because of what we went through to get there. Yeah. And I was just going to ask you about that. Cause he was, he was anchoring in the 2012 U S open. I was actually anchoring as well. Really? On, you know, I was doing, I was doing PGA section events, you know, and putting the best I've ever putted. And so I was disappointed about the ban, but, um, <laughs> what was that process like from winning a U.S. open with an anchored putter to now not being able to use it and still coming out on the other side yeah. with winning the players? It was brutal. Um, in 2000, you know, Weber was always a top 50 guy in putting each year as high as I think, uh, maybe 11th one year. 
um, to the very next year, he was a hundred in the mid one seventies. The next year he was in the mid one seventies. And then all the way up until 2017, the week of the players, he was 192nd on tour and putting. And it was awful because he was hitting the ball better than he had ever hit it in his life. Um, he was still, I think in the top 60 in the world being one of the worst putters on tour. And it just got to the point though, where the amount of strain and, the amount of doubt, you know, you're like, okay, well, is th- is this going to be my life? And, you know, for us, the cool thing, 17, we're on the putting green. Tim Clark comes up. We had already gone to kind of the Kuchar method, but we weren't really putting any better, which is the arm lock. Um, and Tim Clark came, comes up, gives him a putting grip, spent five minutes with him, walks away, and Webb put it into play that week. And that was kind of like the little resurrection of his career there uh, was TPC in 2017. To come back a year later and to dominate the field the way he did, the strongest field in golf by far, and to see that culmination, to be able to do it in the limelight, to win wire to wire, to have all the heat on you all week, and for me to win you know, a golf tournament where I grew up, my grandfather first walked me on a uh, on a golf course right here in in Ponte Vedra and uh first tournament I ever went to in my life I was five years old 1977 was the TPC across the street at Sawgrass and yeah for you know us to be able to get that done extremely special um and something that I mean for me it'll probably be hard for for me to ever feel like that could be topped maybe winning the Masters might try but uh, but that would be the only thing I think they could compare for me. Wow. So going into that event, were you both feeling pretty confident and, and um, feeling good about the day? <laughs> yes. So I don't ever – I kind of, for some reason, believe a little bit in jinxes. I shouldn't, but I do. And so I don't ever tell people, oh, he's going to win, he's going to do all this. But um, me and my wife were driving up the week before to Quail Hollow, and she said, you know, what are your hopes – for these weeks and I said baby if we can just finish top 20 here at quail we're gonna win the players and she stopped she's like I don't think I've ever heard you say that and I told all my friends the same thing and so some old buddies made a little bit of good money a little insider info on the week of players and especially the way he did it but um yeah I just I, the course is built for Weber everything about it now the May course was a much better course for Webb um it played firmer and faster which kind of minimizes that link difference that he has. But, I mean, he can still win it in March, too. But, you know, May was kind of that little secret spot. And it was firm and fast and uh, in, a, in a special week, to say the least. Yeah. And so, like I had said before we started recording, it, I saw the, the feature on you and your foundation um, at the players this last year um, and was one of the reasons why I reached out to you to to have you on here. Um, can you tell us about how that foundation came to be about and what your what your mission and everything is behind the Tesori Family Foundation? Absolutely. Thank you so much. Yes, the Tesori Family Foundation, we started it uh, late in 2009. Um, I was dating my now wife and she runs uh, nonprofits for a living. And I had just told her that in college, one of my favorite memories was we would go once a week to a senior center and just spend time um, with some of the people there. And that I'd always hoped one day to have my own foundation. And the two areas I wanted to focus on, obviously, were, um, you know, underprivileged kids and also senior centers. And so, uh, and she's like, well, why haven't you done it yet? I was like, well, you know, I don't want to do it right now. I don't have the money. I don't have the background. I don't have the resource. She goes, you don't do that. You start by making the difference in one person's life, and then you go from there. 
So we started the foundation. We did some things locally, exactly the way we had said, uh, with the homeless shelters here locally, um, with, um, you know, with some of the food banks. And then also, um, you know, for us, anytime that we could, we'd go to a senior center and we would serve there too for Christmas and Easter, Valentine's Day, all those kind of good times just to kind of bring some joy. 2014 is when things change, and that was when my beautiful baby boy Isaiah was born with Down syndrome. Uh, yep, and very quickly it gave us an area that we wanted to focus on, which was the special needs community. And because of that little boy, because of his smiles, um, the foundation has grown immensely. We just went over the million dollars, mark, the million dollar mark, um, and money given back to the community. Uh, not only here, but around the country as well. We have five all-star kids clinics that we do. We do 25 kids with special needs. I do one with Jordan Spieth here at TPC. I do one with Weber up at Quail. I do one with a few different pros uh, up in Greensboro. Um, and thanks to Steve Gent and Jackson, uh, they run the Sanderson Farms Tournament. It looks like we've got a chance to have 10 of them by the end of next year. Oh, wow. Okay. Throughout the PGA Tour stops. And our hope is by 2025, having one at every stop. Uh, and that would just be, uh, that would be pretty special for us to be able to do and, and something that we're looking forward to. But if anybody wants to check it out, thesorryfamilyfoundation.org. We just, we love what we do. We're just giving back. We've been very, very fortunate, very, very blessed. And just want to use uh, what we've been given to give back as much as we can. Yeah, that's awesome. I love it. Um your your faith is obvious, and um, I love that you're you're using your platform and you're giving back, and um, your passion is obvious as well. Well, thank you, my friend. Thank you. I really appreciate it. So, um, one of the questions I always like to wrap up with, and and maybe I, f- I feel like I might know the answer. Maybe you'll surprise me. Um, okay. Is is uh, what's your favorite course that you've ever played? And then maybe also add one. Um, what's your favorite course to caddy at? Okay, so I won't surprise you on the first one. Um, my favorite course I ever played would be Augusta National. Um, Weber brought me there for my birthday a few years ago. We were able to spend the night in one of the cabins, played two days in a row, played the par three both days, ate dinner, went down to the wine cellar and all the old paintings and uh, photos and all of that. And so that would uh, that'd be my favorite one. Now, caddying at um, is, is a little bit different because it's, it's a little bit of a harder answer. Um, I would say caddying at would probably be St. Andrews, only because it's been fun to watch the progression of my desire for the golf course. Um, I hated it the first time I, I caddied there. I was an American that went over that worked harder than everybody else that week. And after three days, I was cocky. I was arrogant. I had everything figured out. And then the wind changed. And when the wind changed, all of a sudden we were hitting it down different holes. We went from hitting drivers off the tee on some holes to seven irons, and I was completely confused. And now here I am. I've now been able to caddy there in four British Opens, and it is my favorite golf course to figure out. It is a genius golf course. I don't know how they did it. I'm going to assume some of it was definitely luck, um, but a genius golf course that you know, you go around and you end up, the more you see it, the more you play. It's kind of like the Bobby Jones story that he hated it at first and he ended up falling in love with it. And I ended up doing the same thing. So I'd say that's my favorite course to caddy at. All right. That's, those are both, uh, those are two big ones. Augusta and St. Andrews. I didn't really reach out too far on that. That's for sure. You surprised me a little bit, but those are bucket list courses for everyone, even though only one's, one's realistic and one's not. So (laughs) I guess I, I lied. If I can ask you one more question here. Oh yeah, absolutely. 
So the U.S. Open coming up at Pebble Beach. You had mentioned earlier that that was actually a course you competed at when when you were on tour. Um, what's something that you're maybe looking forward to, or you um, you're prepping for for that event? Yeah. Well, I am very excited about the U.S. Open being there. It's a golf course that Webb can compete on and Webb can win on. Um, you know, a lot of times nowadays, like at Beth Page Black, uh, I'm not going to use the word impossible, but it was about as impossible for a bomber to not win. Like a bomber was going to win that tournament. It, it just, there's too many forced carries. There's the course was too long. There's just advantages that they have. And it's not even, they, they don't have to hit it as straight in some of the areas. Pebble beach will um, bring that back to par a little bit. Now, don't get me wrong. Length is always going to be an advantage, but there they have to hit it as straight as we do. And I think that's our only argument that we ever want to have is like, make them hit the ball as straight as we have to hit it. And at Pebble, it'll kind of neutralize some of that length. The course hopefully will play firm and fast like it did back in 10. Um, I think it will, which is good. And 10, uh, I worked for O'Hare there. I think finished top 10, played good. And it's one of those thinking golf courses. It reminds me a little bit of uh, just kind of TPC where you have to kind of work the ball both ways, left to right, right to left. You have to have great distance control, good touch, good speed around the greens. And so it's a really good opportunity for Weber to play well and have a chance to win. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Going to be watching you guys and hope you finish well. Well, I appreciate it, Eric. I pre- Thanks, buddy. Well, um, is there any way that my audience can follow you and see what you're doing, keep up on, on everything. Yes, please do. Yeah. Thanks for asking. Anybody can follow me on uh, Twitter at Paul Tesori. That's usually, I'm, I'm not a big uh, social media guy, but I'll usually kind of keep updates there. People can reach out to me and ask questions or whatever on, uh, on that site. And then again, if anybody wants to know anything about the foundation, Tesori family foundation.org and, my much smarter, prettier, more brilliant, all that good half, uh, she will get those messages and, uh, and respond uh, in a timely manner for sure. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you, bud. Thanks for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe and rate The Looper wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Looper Podcast. Talk to you next time.